Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Filter. On this show, we recognize that the world can be a confusing place to live in. So what I seek to do on this show is to equip you to live with biblical clarity in our confusing world so that you can face the chaos of life with wisdom, integrity, and courage. The challenges to the Christian faith must be answered in every age. Moreover, the specific problems and objections to Christianity are always changing with each new generation. In 1 Peter 3.15, the apostle admonished us to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that is within us. So, the church needs to be equipped in the practice of apologetics, the defense of the faith. That's why I'm excited to welcome Douglas Grotheis back to the podcast to discuss the new edition of his massive work, Christian Apologetics. We discuss the work of apologetics, what's new in his book, and the unique challenges to the Christian worldview today. Dr. Grotheis is professor of philosophy at Denver Seminary and the author of several books. He just released the second edition of his Magnus, magnum opus book, Christian Apologetics. Dr. Grotheis is also the author of several other volumes, including Philosophy in Seven Sentences, Truth Decay, and Unmasking the New Age. He is also a frequent contributor to both scholarly and popular publications. Before we get into this episode, I'm excited to tell you about a new giveaway that we're doing here on Filter. I've partnered with my friends at Stayforth Designs to give away three copies of their fantastic Right Side Up journal. I've got my Right Side Up journal right here next to me. If you want to enter to win one of these amazing uh, tools for productivity and clarity, then just go to the link in the description below or in the show notes to enter for your chance to win. You can enter between any time between now and April 29th. On the 29th, we'll be choosing three winners to receive a free copy of this journal. So go and enter at that link now so you can get your chance to win this great resource. Lastly, let me encourage you to subscribe to our email list so that you can get all the latest content sent directly into your inbox. Just visit the link in the show notes and you can sign up on my website. Also, be sure that you're subscribed to Filter wherever you get your podcasts so that you can get all future episodes right on your homepage. If you're helped by this content, we'd really appreciate it if you left us a rating and review so that others uh, can find this show. Leave Filter a five-star rating on Spotify and write a review on Apple Podcasts. This will only take a minute of your time, but when you take these simple steps, it really helps us to get the message of biblical clarity out to more people. Well, without any further delay, let's jump into this conversation that I got to have with Dr. Douglas Grotheis. Doug, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here, Aaron. Well, it's great to have you back. You're one of our uh, few repeat guests, but uh, multiple repeats. I think this is your third episode here with us. So that is a uh, small and exclusive club that you're getting to join. So I appreciate you making the time to, uh, to be with us here again on Filter. It's been a little while since we talked, but you've been really busy, as we were discussing before we got started recording. Uh, you have a few books coming out. Uh, we're going to be talking about one that's out now, which is your latest edition of Christian Apologetics. Uh, but before we do that, just real quickly, go ahead and plug uh, some of the other books you have coming out this year. Yes, I have a book coming out in July with Salem Books called Fire in the Streets, which is about the ideology behind the riots of 2020. So it's mostly about critical race theory. That'll be about 260 pages. 
And then in December, I have a book coming out with Andrew Shepherdson, who's an adjunct at Denver Seminary, among a lot of other things, called um, Knowledge of God in the Word and the World, which is an introduction to classical apologetics. Okay, awesome. So you've got uh, two coming out this year, which are uh, pretty closely related to apologetics and then the, uh, and then the fire in the streets. And so sure. you just had a, a second edition of your, your big book, Christian Apologetics, come out. Uh, which I, I, see only... I see in your shelf to the right back there. Oh, you can see it back there? Yeah. Yeah, well, it's so wide, it's easy to pick out. It, it takes up a lot of real estate. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I, I have the first edition. Uh, for you guys who are watching on YouTube, you can see it over my shoulder back there. Uh, and I need to get the new edition. I, I don't have it yet. Uh, but it well, is uh, one everybody. of my favorites. Yeah, mm-hmm. I can show everybody what it looks like. And Yeah, um, nice new updated cover. Yeah, I really like the cover. They gave me about three options for the cover. And I gravitated toward this one just for the aesthetics. But then mm-hmm. people kept asking me, what does it mean? You know, because it's got these balls that are going through a circle. And I said, yeah. well, the Christian worldview is the circle. And it captures all the different facts of life. It gives uh, a channel for the facts of life, or it interprets the facts of life correctly. I made that up on the fly, but I think it works pretty well. Well, it's abstract. It's pretty thick also. This one is 839 pages. The first one was 758. But this one actually is a little bit smaller print, and it has seven new chapters in it. So, you know, I taught the book for years and years, and I would teach through it, and I would think, as big as it is, I left some things out. And then as time went along, I realized some of the things I addressed, some of my disagreements with fellow Christians over postmodernism, for example, could be cut out. And then I could have a little bit more room to present the constructive case. Yeah. Well, I want to talk about what's new and different in this edition. But before we do that, I know that our audience uh, is already very much, a lot of our audience is already very much familiar with apologetics philosophy, history, that's that's what they're into. Uh, but for those who might be listening who aren't even familiar with what is apologetics, and so just the title of your book alone is confusing to them, can you give us a definition, your definition, of what is Christian apologetics? Right. The definition I like to use is that apologetics is the defense of Christianity as objectively true, compellingly rational, and pertinent to the whole of life. And the crux text for that would be First Peter 3.15 about having a reason for the hope that is within you, a defense, and presenting that with gentleness and respect to anyone who asks you why you believe. Yeah, so I like your definition. It's, uh, it's similar to mine, but it's better than mine. Uh, but one of the things that I make unique about my definition whenever I uh, teach apologetics, I, I teach it as an adjunct at New Orleans uh, Seminary, um, is a lot of people, whenever they define apologetics, they say it is the rational defense hmm. of the Christian faith. faith. And um, I usually leave that part out because I think that we can take advantage of uh, other arguments and means of defending the faith that aren't necessarily just rationalistic arguments such as the use of imagination, story, appeal to experience, and so on. And so is that why uh, you, you've you articulated your 
definition in in such a way? Well, I I, I hope my definition covers everything. So, mm-hmm. you know, I say objective truth. So you need to defend that today. Yeah. When people talk about my truth and your truth. And that it's compellingly rational. And then I say pertinent to the whole of life. So pertinent to the whole of life means that it applies to every area of personal and social life. But it also applies to every aspect of the person, not merely the reason, but the imagination as well. And to experience. I have a chapter in the book on religious experience, which is one of the facets of apologetics. Apologetics is very broad, very deep, very wide. Uh, we're all called to do it, whether or not you're a professor or a pastor. That's what Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3, 15. But it can be done using various uh, modes of argument and address. Now, let's say you're talking to a philosophy student, and they have lots of rational objections to Christianity. Well, then you really need to deal with all of those very specifically. Let's say the problem of evil. Or they might have a historical argument that the New Testament is full of myths and legends, can't be trusted, etc. But part of the goal of apologetics is simply to get people interested in the subject. That is, to get people to care about God and the gospel. And that's where Blaise Pascal has helped me so much, because I think of all the apologists over the centuries, he was perhaps the best at attracting people's attention to the pertinence of Christianity. He understood the workings of the human person so well, our reason, our imagination, how we go wrong. We tend to divert ourselves from the issue because we don't wanna deal with our death and having to face the unpleasant things of life. And of course he says that we've gotta remember that Christianity is the, the highest stakes religion you can imagine. It's a matter of heaven and hell, life and death. So. that needs to be taken seriously. It's not just your opinion about who the best football team is or the baseball team or what your favorite color is. It's a response to Jesus, who was a controversialist, as John Stott put it. Uh, You read through the Gospels, people either love Jesus, are perplexed by him and want to know more, or they, they hate him and want to crucify him. So apologetics needs to make the Christian worldview and the Christian message pertinent and cogent. It is pertinent and cogent, but it's not like you have to make the gospel relevant. It is the most relevant thing to the human condition, period. But you have to try to show people that it is the most pertinent for time and eternity, for the individual, for the family, for society, for art, for politics, everything. Yeah, I recently had on uh, Oz Guinness uh, a few weeks ago, a month ago or so now, uh, to talk about his newest book, uh, The Great Quest, and what he's trying to do in that book is, I think, talk about or try to do what you said there, how a part of apologetics is initially just getting, sometimes getting people interested to ask these questions. And as as Oz put it in that book, uh, an invitation to the examined life. Right. One where we consider the biggest and most important questions of life. And uh, those ideas and decisions and commitments, which are most pertinent to life. Is that book out already or did you get an advanced copy? Yes, it is out. Uh, uh, the Great Quest. Oh, my. OK, after we're done, right to Amazon. Next day delivery. Osgenis is <laughs> my favorite living Christian author, I think, overall. 
especially as a social critic. I think he mm -hmm. and J.P. Moreland would be about even in my esteem and my deep appreciation for them. Oz has mm -hmm. another excellent book called Fool's Talk, which is mm -hmm. pretty much the same basic issue. So I imagine those books would make a terrific couple. It's not so much giving the arguments, but attracting people to even care about the arguments and doing it in a really winsome, creative, competent, courageous way. That's vital. The Christian apologetics movement has grown tremendously in the last 20, 25 years. You think of the success of apologetics programs at Talbot, at uh, New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. We've had one for many years at Denver Seminary, where I teach. And we're getting the message out there into the world, but we have a lot more to do. It needs to be in the pulpit a lot more. We need to have it involved in Christian education, in the church. It needs to be taught at uh, Christian classical schools, all Christian schools, home schools. And I'm hoping that even though this book is a kind of a monster, I called the previous one the brick, and this one I think is even heavier. It could be a doorstop, you know, as well as a book. But I'm hoping this will motivate people to teach it. I, I was really happy when Sean McDowell, who endorsed both versions of the book, said, I've used your book for advanced high school students, and I've also used it for graduate students. So, you know, that, that really touches yeah. me that it has a pretty wide application. If you're willing to sit down, be serious, go line by line, step by step, because I don't assume that you're taking a graduate class in apologetics. I don't assume you have a background in philosophy or logic. So what I try to do is initiate you step by step by step into the world of worldview thinking apologetics, philosophical argument, and so on. And I'm thankful to our Lord that there even was a second edition, which means that it has done pretty well. It's been used, colleges, seminaries, universities, churches, pastors. Um, I'm very, very grateful. In fact, when the book came out two weeks ago, I, I looked at it and I thought, thank you, Lord, that I've had the kind of life that has given me the time and the possibilities of of writing this kind of book. Very grateful to him for that. Yeah, and I echo that gratitude because we are benefiting from that that time that you that he's given you and the ability to do it. There's one thing that uh, I was want to ask you about that you already touched on, so it'd be good to go there. Uh, you mentioned Oz and your appreciation for him and J.P. Moreland and their uh, and their influence. I was wanting to ask who would you. Uh, who, what people and also what works books would you point to as having the greatest influence on the way that you do apologetics, the way that you approach apologetics, the way that you write about apologetics? Uh, what would you say are your greatest influences? Well, I think uh, in the most part, for the most part, some of the people I read as a very young Christian in the middle to late 1970s. So starting with Francis Schaeffer, his book, The God Who Is There. Schaeffer's heart for the lost is evident. His mind for discerning trends in history and culture was very sharp. And although he didn't articulate his apologetic method as thoroughly as I do, when you get down to it, our methods are essentially the same, which is you present Christianity as a worldview or a hypothesis to be verified or falsified. 
and you do so according to various criteria, such as internal consistency, factual adequacy, and existential significance. Those are three categories. I have eight criteria that I give in my book. So his book, The God Who Is There, the most influential book in my Christian life, certainly. Um, And then reading C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity, Miracles, The Problem of Pain, um, The Abolition of Man. I read most of those as an undergraduate. And then the work also of James Sire in Worldview Issues, his book, The Universe Next Door. Uh, It's now out in a I think sixth edition, which actually came out posthumously, uh, his good friend Jim Hoover revised it a little bit after after uh, Dr. Sire's death in 2018. And Oz Guinness, as a social critic, as someone all, who always has an eye on apologetics, uh, one of our great Christian statesmen. And then I think a little later in my Christian life, only because he wasn't publishing too much right when I became a Christian, would be J.P. Moreland. Scaling the Secular City. It was a book I used for many years, teaching apologetics at Denver Seminary. Very high-level analytic philosophy in in the service of Christ. So those are some of the key people. Schaefer, C.S. Lewis, Jim Sire, Os Guinness, J.P. Moreland. Uh, there are a lot of others, but they're crucial. crucial. I've been helped a lot by Norman Geisler's apologetics over the years also. Yeah. Yeah, when I think if you're familiar with any of those authors and then you read your books, you can certainly see the influences and in, in the shaping from uh, mm-hmm. from those, especially Schaefer and so on. And, and you you refer to them a good bit, so, uh, so no, certainly no surprises. Um, you mentioned the effect that Schaefer's had on you uh, in terms of worldview thinking. And earlier, whenever I was asking about your definition of apologetics, you were saying that you know, one way that we can think of apologetics is there are these different tools that we can use to uh, defend the faith. And so worldview and these tools of defending the faith, we often call, uh, once you get more into the academic side, I guess, we call apologetic methodologies, Mm -hmm. the different ways, tools, or approaches to how we defend the faith. Uh, What's your thought on apologetic methodologies? Do you, Mm -hmm. uh, do you think you fit into a methodology if you do, how would you describe it? Or, or or how do you think of these different tools of defending the faith? Right, I do. And depending on how you look at it, you could say uh, that I hold to a cumulative case approach. That's what I call it in the book. And that means that you give a variety of arguments to support various aspects of the Christian worldview or perspective on life. So we've got theistic arguments meaning natural theology, we can argue from the cosmos to God, from our sense of morality to God, from religious experience to God. But no one argument does all the work. You need a collection of arguments that all converge on the truth and rationality of the Christian worldview. Viewed as another way, you could say I'm a classical apologist because the way the book is laid out is that I do preliminary work such as the biblical basis for apologetics. Sometimes you have to give an apologetic for apologetics. Then I talk about the biblical view of truth, defend the correspondence view of truth, talk about the importance of truth for life. And then I begin to build an argument for what's called theism. Just there is one transcendent 
creator God. And I developed that through uh, cosmological arguments, design arguments, moral arguments, and so on. And then we get to uh, the specifics of the Christian worldview. So I have a terrific chapter in there by Dr. Craig Blomberg on the reliability of the New Testament. He is literally the best in the world on that, period. Mm -hmm. Period. He didn't ask me to say that. He just is, although he wouldn't say it. And then we go into Christology. What did Jesus say about himself? What kind of claims did he make? What, what kind of credentials does he have? And one of the new aspect, <clears throat> excuse me, new aspects of the second edition here is I have two chapters explaining and defending the atonement. <clears throat> because I realized as I was teaching through the first edition year after year, that I only had three or four pages on the cross of Christ. And a lot mm. of people attack the idea of the atonement. I mean, going way back to Socinus and contemporary people who call it divine child abuse and so on. So I, I explain and defend the atonement. I defend the possibility of miracles. And then I have a chapter defending the resurrection of Jesus as the great miracle. And then we look at objections to Christianity, such as, how can you believe in Christianity when there are so many other religions, the religious pluralism objection? Mm -hmm. What about Islam? Has Islam superseded Christianity? Uh, then also the problem of evil. How can we believe in a totally perfectly good God who's also all powerful, connected to so much evil of various kinds in the world? And then another new chapter I have is called Lament as Apologetic. So a lot of people think the problem of evil just destroys Christianity. I don't think it does. I think it gives the best account of good and evil of any worldview. We have to always be comparative in our apologetics because contrast is the mother of clarity, as uh, Francis Schaeffer said and Os Guinness said. But then also there is the experience of suffering and evil and lament. So I have a new chapter saying that the Christian message, the living God himself, gives us the best way to suffer well in a groaning, broken world, in rebellion against mm. God. Mm. So I kind of flip it around because people say Christianity is illogical because of these propositions. God is all good. God is all powerful. And there is evil. I think I respond to that pretty well. And then I say, wait a minute, Christianity gives us not only the best worldview to explain the origin, existence, and outcome of evil, but it also gives us the existential tools, such as lament and hope, for dealing yeah. with suffering. And, and I've known a lot of at least one kind of particular suffering in my life. My first wife, Rebecca Merrill Grotheis, to whom both editions are dedicated, was chronically ill until she was fatally ill and she died of dementia in 2018. And I wrote a book about that journey called Walking Through Twilight. So I've reflected a lot on lament, the Psalms of lament in scripture, bringing your whole person before God, the confusion, the pain, the anger, the, the deep, deep sadness and so on. And yeah. I know because Christianity is true and rational that God hears me and God knows what is going on exactly. And Christ suffered 
the worst possible suffering on the cross. Uh, and he said that it is finished. He did the work to ensure uh, that the, the world will be judged properly. His death and his resurrection and his second coming give meaning to every aspect of life, uh, good, bad, and indifferent. Hey guys, just a quick break to talk to you about my new sponsor here on the podcast, Zencaster. Zencaster is the tool that I use to record the remote interviews that I do here for the podcast. Whenever I decided that I was going to start doing remote interviews, talking to people who I would have to do over, line, uh, over the internet, I looked at several different tools. I didn't want to use Zoom because honestly, Zoom just doesn't give you a really good quality product at the end in terms of uh, audio and video quality. I looked at some of the other uh, services out there, but I didn't find anything that was easy to use and that worked as well as Zencaster. I love Zencaster because they have tools for running post-production. They give you separate audio and video files for both you and your guests, uh, and they come all in super high quality, crystal clear audio, HD video that you can't get from using other uh, over-the-internet uh, streaming services. I love Zencaster and Zencaster is offering my listeners a 30% off of their pro plan for three months whenever you use my link to sign up. So just go to the link that I have in the description below or in my show notes and you can sign up for a free trial of Zencaster and then to get 30% off your first three months with a pro account. I love Zencaster. I've been using them uh, for the podcast for uh, at least a year now and I highly recommend them. So go uh, and sign up through that link so that you can get 30% off your Zencaster Pro account. Now, let's get back into this episode. Yeah, uh, I'm excited to hear about that chapter uh, because I remember reading and uh, and listening to some of the talks that you gave on Lament as Christian Apologetic mm-hmm. um, and uh, really, really being impacted and, and uh, inspired by that argument. Uh, and so excited to hear that. Um, so in addition, yeah, yeah. just let me mention to Mm -hmm. people who are listening, I gave that talk lament as apologetic, I think three or four years ago at the defend conference put on by Mm -hmm. New Orleans Baptist theological seminary might've given it once or twice. So if you look at YouTube, you can find some lectures that I've done on that. And then I have a few articles online have been written various places. Also, such yeah. a uh, modern reformation, I think, has a version of that argument. Yeah, I'll link that talk that you gave, I defend, in the show notes. So if anybody wants to see that, just go to the show notes and I'll have that link there so you can find that talk. Um, so in addition to that chapter, uh, what are some of the other new mm-hmm. chapters? You said there's seven new chapters. What are some of the new topics that you dive into right. in the second edition? Yes, well, I have a a fairly short chapter, but I think fairly important on something called original monotheism. And this is an argument most apologists have not used in recent years, uh, Catholic or Protestant. And I've been teaching this through the work of Winfried Corduan for years through his excellent book, Neighboring Faiths. And he also has another book called The Tapestry. And he's got a larger book, Uh, called In the Beginning God. Essentially, what I do in my chapter, and I really rely a lot on on Wynn, and he he vetted it for me. He said, uh, you did a good job and you made it your own. So I thought, whew, okay, good. 
(laughs) (laughs) That's a good endorsement. And you get an endorsement from somebody who's the expert on it. But you see a naturalistic worldview, an evolutionary worldview, thinks that everything has evolved to where we are now. So religion has evolved, supposedly, from animism and polytheism to theism. It's been a long, gradual process, but you can explain the whole thing naturalistically. And theism is a latecomer in human history, and it's nothing but an invention of the human mind, as it has been worked out through history and culture all these years. Uh, Sigmund Freud defended this idea, Emile Durkheim defended this idea, and the evidence doesn't support it. It's all based on the ideology of evolutionary development. But if you look at the strata of evidence in written documents and in archaeology and so on, and you look at ethnography, there's a good case to be made that the original religious consciousness of humanity was monotheism. There is one great God who is the Lord over all things. So in the chapter, I don't try to give a thorough defense of original monotheism. I think it's kind of a bonus because if you have really strong cosmological design, moral, religious experience, ontological arguments, in a sense, you don't need it. But what I do is a strategy that Alvin Plantinga pioneered called defeating a defeater. So if you could give a knockdown, drag out case that religion evolved, and there's nothing to religion except natural processes in nature and human psychology, then that's a strong objection to Christianity. So what I try to do is say there's not an adequate case for that. And in fact, the evidence tips pretty significantly on the side of original monotheism, given the evidence outside of the Bible. I'm not saying appeal to Genesis 1 or Romans 1, but you look at what Genesis 1 and Romans 1 teach about the original reality of God, the original consciousness of God, and then how people defect from it through sin, then you look at the world of history and culture and ethnography and you find it matches up. It really does. Even in these cultures that are polytheistic or animistic, there's typically a remembrance or some kind of allusion to the original sky god or the original god who created all things But now, this God seems distant, and he's not available to us, so we have to go to the shaman or the witch doctor or engage in ritual magic to make things happen the way we want. But there's this general awareness of a supreme being. So that is a chapter I'm I'm happy about. And besides uh, Wynne Corduin, not too many people have developed this idea. The great exponent of this idea was a man named Wilhelm Schmidt, who was a Roman Catholic anthropologist, who wrote voluminously on this. And you can get some of his works. He wrote this big multi-volume treatise in German uh, that has not been translated fully, probably never will be. But you can find some shorter versions of the argument. And then Wynne has worked with it, and now I've developed it. So I'm hoping that that will be really an assist, especially I'd say to college students who might take a class on religion or a class on anthropology, and they're given this evolutionary view of religion, just the way it is, period. But when you look at the facts, you look at the history, you look at what the actual 
evidence is and what people believed, it doesn't fit this pattern of animism, polytheism, theism. It actually fits this original idea of one God and then losing touch with that God, of course, which fits the biblical view of the fall, right? Uh, God seems distant because of our sin, not because God is distant. So I'm excited about that chapter on uh, original monotheism. Yeah, no, that sounds really good. And it brings up an interesting uh, sort of tangent thought for me, which is that it's relying upon uh, the the experience of non-Christian people as an evidence for Christian belief. So it brings in this topic of uh, natural theology or general revelation. Right, it and does. In, and in Christian apologetics, there is a debate over, and especially but this goes back to methodologies, there's, a, there's debate over uh, can we use natural theology, general revelation as a part of our defense? Mm-hmm. Uh, how much value is there to it? You know, the hard presuppositionalist, presuppositionalist such as Van Til and mm-hmm. followers say that there's you know, absolutely no, no use in it, uh, shouldn't be used. What is your view of natural theology? Mm-hmm. How useful is it? How reliable is it? And should it be used? Right. Well, as a younger Christian, I read quite a bit of Cornelius Van Til, Gordon Clark, Carl F. H. Henry, and uh, Greg Bonson, who is the great exponent of Van Til. And what I really derive from presuppositionalism is a strong negative apologetic. They wanted to presuppose the truth of Christianity and show that it was coherent, and then attack other worldviews as being illogical, or they might say unlivable. But they thought that you were granting too much ground to the unbeliever if you say, okay, use your reason, look at the facts, look at the evidence, and you should conclude that Christianity makes the, makes the most sense. But I don't think there's anything against the Christian worldview by appealing to natural theology. That's one of the arguments is you're giving the sinner, the autonomous man or woman, too much leeway. You know, there's no neutrality, they will say. I agree. So sin makes apologetics and natural theology more difficult uh, because I'm a sinner and everybody I talk to is a sinner. And one of the effects of sin is cognitive impairment, right? Out out of pride, arrogance, etc. But, and I'm a Calvinist, actually, I'm a Reformed Anglican, charismatic egalitarian, so there's something for everybody not to like. But, uh, (laughs) I don't see that a biblical or even a reformed anthropology has anything against natural theology at all. And I think the question is, can we take the data of general revelation and use philosophical and scientific arguments to show that theism is far more warranted than atheism or pantheism or polytheism? The answer to that is yes. So I have a whole chapter called In Defense of Natural Theology. So before I do it, I defend it. And some apologetics books don't do that. Now, the reason I'm so sensitive to it, I think, is because I used to be a presuppositionalist, and I've learned so much from that school, Uh, and also that I wrote my dissertation on why the great French philosopher Blaise Pascal in the 17th century rejected apologetics. He had four or five major reasons And I wrote my PhD dissertation on why he rejected natural theology back in 93. Uh, 1993, by the way. I I know I look older now. 1993. And 
I found all of his objections, which were tough objections, to fail. So I go through, what is it, eight or nine objections to natural theology before I start presenting the case for natural theology. And this book that uh, Dr. Andrew Shepherdson and I have coming out in December called Knowledge of God in the World and the Word, I misspoke last time, it's in the world and in the word, uh, gives a defense of doing natural theology and gives a big heaping of natural theology. So I think the apologist needs to use all the appropriate tools and arguments, but do so within a consistent epistemology, a consistent apologetic approach. On one level, the unbeliever you're talking to doesn't care one bit what your apologetic methodology is, right? They're probably yeah. not going to ask you. Now, I'm an atheist, but I'm really curious about your apologetic methodology. That could happen. In fact, on Amazon, there's a review of the first edition of Christian Apologetics where the guy says, I'm an atheist, but I love this book. And I'm thinking, if you love the book, why are you still an atheist? But that I should try to reach out to that person. That person knows apologetic methodology, but most non-Christians don't, and they don't care. They want to know, well, why should I be a Christian? I'm not compelled. I'm not convinced at this point. So that is an argument. Uh, most I'd say most Christians that know anything about apologetics now are favorable uh, to natural theology through the work of so many people. William Lane Craig, J.P. Moreland, uh, Lee Strobel's book, The Case for a Creator, is fantastic from cosmology, astronomy, biology, biochemistry. God's stamp of design and creation is over everything. It's like Augustine said in the Confessions, anything you perceive, anything you look at in the world basically says, I was created. You know, if you have eyes to see and if you have ears to hear, uh, the heavens declaring the glory of God, Psalm 19, 1 yeah. and 2. So I do try to be yeah, I think of Yeah, if I could just follow up, Aaron, yeah. for a minute. The subtitle yeah. of the book is A Comprehensive Case for Biblical Faith. And the first edition had the same subtitle. But it really wasn't comprehensive. I left out a few very important things, and I've tried to add those. And of course, there are many other books. I do apologetics as a Christian philosopher who teaches at a seminary, who loves the Bible, who loves to evangelize people. Uh, I'm not a biblical scholar per se, as would be a Craig Blomberg or Richard Hess, and they provide chapters in the book. So if you want to really get deep into the woods of supposed biblical contradictions or archaeological evidence, I'm not your man for that. But I do deal pretty thoroughly, I think, with scripture and theology and philosophy and anything else I think I need to bring to bear on this issue. Yeah. Um, let's see. Now, the first edition... The <laughs> Should I tell uh, you the other? Yeah, edition? yeah. Let's hear. Let's hear about could, a couple of the other ones. Yeah, I could be a little briefer, and I'm opening it because there's seven, and I forget sometimes what they all are. I mentioned previously. I have a chapter, chapter 24, called the Atonement. Excuse me, chapter 23, the Atonement, stating it properly. So, what did Christ do for us? He did a lot. It's amazing in his life, death, and resurrection. But especially considering his death, he 
paid a penalty that we cannot pay. We owe God everything and we can't pay him anything. So Christ paid a debt that we incurred through sin, which we cannot pay. He also reconciled us to God, defeated Satan and the demons, gave us union with himself, were raised up with Christ in the heavenly places, Colossians 3, uh, 1 through 3. And the most controversial aspect is what's known, big theological word called propitiation. And that means that atonement was made through appeasing the wrath of God. That's the theological meaning. And there are a lot of people today, a lot of evangelicals who are denying this aspect of the atonement. They might gravitate towards uh, union with Christ. He paid a debt. He lived a perfect life for us. He defeated Satan and the demons. That's called the Christus Victor view. But they don't like the idea that Christ, as an innocent and perfect person, would be punished for our sin, to take the penalty that we deserve. So in extreme cases, you have people calling this divine child abuse. How could a heavenly loving father punish his innocent, perfectly righteous son for something he never did? So I take that up. And my favorite heretic on that one, talking about heretics now, not evangelicals who disagree with me, was a writer named Socinus, who challenged the atonement. He gave uh, four or five arguments against it. And I respond to all of those arguments in the book because propitiation, I think, is the center of the atonement. I think it's like the hub of the wheel, basically. Yeah. Because when you read through Romans, you see that there's a problem for the human race. Sinful humans, perfectly holy God. Romans 1, the wrath of God abides against sinners who create idols and don't give thanks and engage in terrible actions. Well, what do we do with this wrath of God? It has to be addressed. You can't. God can't just wink and say, okay, I'm not angry anymore. He is. He's righteous and just and holy. So Christ, as our representative and our sacrifice, suffers in our place. So the key idea of the atonement is substitution and is a substitutionary, propitiary, or propiti propitiational <laughs> sacrifice. So I defend that at some length, and I've worked on that over the years. I read John Stott's fantastic book, The Cross of Christ, years ago. I went back to that. Also on the words from Greek for propitiation, I went back to Leon Morris and other writers on that. So I give, I think, a pretty rigorous, pretty robust defense of propitiation. Also, William Lane Craig uh, wrote a book a few years ago called Atonement and the Death of Christ that is just terrific. So I defend it, and then I, I explain it, I defend it. There are about 50 pages on that. And then another chapter, I think this was the first chapter I thought of as an addition is called In Defense of the Church. Because so many people say, I'm spiritual but not religious. I don't want to have anything to do with organized religion. And I want to say, do you like disorganized religion? But 
there's that idea that I can do spirituality on my own or with some elective yeah. group that I select. So I go basically from Christology to ecclesiology. Jesus, who was God incarnate, who died for our sins, rose from the dead, ascended to heaven at the right hand of the Father, coming again in power and glory. He said in Matthew 16, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. So apparently Jesus, who is unparalleled as an individual in history and eternity, thinks the church is rather important. So I defend the institution of the church. I say that there's an apologetic for the church. And the church itself, when people are walking in the spirit, trying to live out the Bible, confessing their sins and so on, the church itself is an apologetic, primarily through love, uh, speaking the truth and love to one another, speaking the truth and love to the world. And back to Schaefer, he wrote two books on the church many years ago, uh, The Church Before the Watching World, and then a book called The Church at the End of the 20th Century. I went back to those and found a lot of very significant material. And I found that most Protestant books on apologetics say almost nothing about the church. Yeah. And that's a weakness, especially evangelical Protestants. We often don't have a very high ecclesiology. We have a very high Christology. But our Christology should lead us to a very engaged and engaging view of the church and the importance of something just like attending a godly Bible-believing church regularly, you know, putting that above other things, supporting the church financially, and so on. So I'm really pretty jazzed. I'm a jazz fan. I'm pretty jazzed about that chapter because uh, it was a big lacuna in my first edition. You're yeah. a pastor. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I'm excited to hear that. And I think that is a, a big and needed area of Christian apologetics today, uh, because I think we live also in a critical time whenever the, uh, the church needs defense. Right. It does. Uh, because yes. I think, yeah, I think there's, there's cultural and even, uh, political attacks, uh, coming down against the church. Uh, it's, it's usefulness, uh, it's, it's goodness in the world. Does it do anything for, people does it do anything for society what's the point of it so i think that it is it is good that there is a defense of the church in there um you know through apologetics uh yeah, as a part of a comprehensive right. defense of the faith uh but then also showing of how, the good it does in the world i think so and there are lots of books about the church you know it's a theological topic called ecclesiology but i mm -hmm. haven't seen a whole lot from evangelicals on the apologetic significance of the church and an apologetic for the church, because we tend to be mm -hmm. uh, pretty individualistic about our own spirituality. Uh, and even years ago, I'll name the name. He wrote a book on it. George Barner wrote a book saying the church is really not that important. If you mm. pray, read your Bible, witness to people, do good works, keep your nose clean. <laughs> you don't need the church. And that is so wrong. Now, I don't yeah. go after um, Barna on that. I think I have a footnote saying this is the view I'm opposing. But we need to identify as Christians with other members of the body because there's so many beautiful metaphors of what the church is. And one of them 
it is the body of Christ. And of course, each part of the body is significant for the life of the person. In fact, Blaise Pascal wrote about that. I'm also writing a book on Pascal. He talks about a body of living members and has some very insightful things to say on that. Uh, We're also um, a royal priesthood. We're also the bride of Christ. I think in that chapter, I go through four or five uh, metaphors for what the church is. It's not just people who show up who tend to think the same and do some religious things. The church is the representation of Christ in the world, so it ought to have a central place in our lives. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's something we can learn from ancient apologists as well. I think they defended the mm-hmm. church uh, much more frequently, uh, once again, because they were in a hostile culture. Right. And right. so they it was necessary. For their own existence as legitimate, let's say, in the Roman Empire. Exactly. The Roman Empire. Yeah, exactly. They, uh, well, we're worried about you people. Uh, we think you have another Lord. You're, you're a terrible citizen. So you mm-hmm. have people like Tertullian and others. Uh, responding to that. So I think you're right. It's a good point. And the church is under siege in some ways in the United States, uh, either through atrophy and apathy or sometimes attacks on religious freedom. I don't really deal with the religious freedom issue too much uh, in this book, but I have some other writings on it elsewhere. Yeah, one thing I was wondering about being that uh, it's been, uh, I, I can't remember when your first edition was published. Was it early 2010s or right before 2010? 2011. 2011, that's what I thought. Okay, so uh, yeah, so a little over 10 years since uh, between these two editions. And while this, this apologetics book isn't necessarily getting into cultural wars, cultural issues, it, it is still being written in a cultural context. And so I'm sure that our cultural context does play somewhat into your thought whenever you're writing uh, this book. So what has changed in our culture in the time between these two editions? And how did that affect the way that you think about writing this book? Right. I think one of the key things is the LGBTQ movement. So the first edition has a chapter called The God I Don't Believe In or Distortions of Christianity. And in that edition, back in 2011, I talk mostly about issues related to homosexuality, uh, the gay pride movement. But in this edition, I expand that to talk more broadly about LGBTQ kind of issues. And I give, actually, in the book, an apologetic, and I was inspired to do this by an article in a secular philosophy magazine. I give an argument that someone could be a fulfilled, happy human being as a gay person without indulging their sexual predilections. That is, someone could follow Christ, find meaning from Christ, the Bible, the church, not have their orientation changed, but be celibate. And I know of two young men uh, who are doing just that. So I give an argument against the view that Christianity is cruel, because if you're gay, it tells you you can't act on your deepest erotic desires and therefore... Christianity is proposing something that is cruel, unfair, and just inhuman. So mm-hmm. I give an apologetic that was originally given in a magazine called Philosophy Now, which is a philosophy, not journal, but more of a popular magazine put out in England. So that's new. I think that's the main area where I respond to 
cultural issues. I think I have a little bit on the idea of post-truth in one of my chapters on truth. Several years ago, that became a very popular word that we live in a post-truth culture, meaning truth doesn't matter as much as perception and power. So I respond to that a bit. Um, I also respond a little bit more, I think, in the the area of racism. I've added a bit to that section of the chapter called uh, The God I Don't Believe In. Mm. But I think generally in the Christian world, apologetics has only gotten more exciting and better. There are more and better arguments for intelligent design in cosmology, biology. Uh, the Discovery Institute just keeps cranking out more evidence, not cranking out, but discovering more evidence through their mm. researchers for design and the, the argument for the reliability of the New Testament and for Jesus just keeps getting better. I don't know of yeah. any setbacks for apologetics in the last 10 years. There are new challenges you need to respond to. And one person, as I said, can't be an expert in everything. Uh, I know that. I tried and I failed, but I do the best I can. I think the books, I've got to mm -hmm. add up the footnotes just for fun. But it, there must be at least 2,000 footnotes in this book. Wow. <laughs> I'll leave it to you, Aaron. That's your assignment. You're my student. When you get the mm. new edition, you go through and add up the footnotes for me. <laughs> well, I'll give it a try. All right. I'll give it a try. How about that? Uh, but even beyond the book, what do you what do you see as some of the major beyond the book? Just speaking as a philosopher, apologist, someone who uh, tries to read and understand and respond to culture. What do you think has been some of the the largest shifts in our culture over the past? 11 years. Uh, and what is today the primary challenge to Christian belief in our culture? Mm -hmm. Well, one of them is the matter of public policy with respect to public health in light of the pandemic. I did a fair amount of writing about the pandemic in 2020 and 2021. I didn't get deep into the policy issues, but I said that we need to consider the health of others. So some restrictions seem to be prudent and significant. Now it seems to be coming out that a lot of lockdowns or lockdowns as a whole were not very effective. But I think we need to think through what citizenship means as a Christian in the time of a terrible pandemic, a world plague. What is our stance? When do we perhaps have to resist the state if it says, we don't want you to meet, or we don't want you to say certain things about the pandemic. And different churches have responded differently. I know many churches, if not having been split over this issue, uh, have lost members because there's been such vehement disagreement about it. Now, our pastor at my church, Tim Suits, said, we have not had that struggle in our church. We have not had a big falling out, a lot of fracturing, and praise God for that. Uh, I think another issue is a philosophy of technology, which I've actually been working on for many years. Wrote a book on that way back in the dark ages called The Soul in Cyberspace, 1996. You're one of the six people that read that book. And, you know, especially now in the age of Zoom, how much do we go back to embodied interaction? 
how much do we leave at the level of mediated communication? Those are huge issues. Will people come back to the church building with other believers? Will they continue uh, instead to watch online? So again, back to ecclesiology, what is the meaning of fellowship? Uh, You know, ecclesia means those gathered together, gathered together for a purpose. And how, how much do we really gather together on Zoom? or Google Meets, or whatever else is out there. So we need to continue to think hard about that. And Yeah, we now have the rise of the metaverse. Oh, goodness, yeah, we could do... The metaverse with digital real estate and, uh, and virtual, virtual church happening mm-hmm. in the metaverse. I know well, I at least... Uh, how, they, how they do communion in the metaverse. That's what I want to figure out, you know. Have your that avatar... Does seem- Go over to the little bread image and click it. <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that seems way. like a, a hard obstacle to overcome in the metaverse. But I do know of it. Of at least, if, if I would have prepared ahead of time, no, if I would have known we're getting hit into this topic, I would have pulled up the clip. Uh, but I do know of at least one uh, one on church that is holding services in the metaverse. They actually consider it a campus. Um, okay, and Let's so I'm sure that. <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll plan for another we episode. We'll do a show on that. on that. Yeah. Um so yeah, yeah, certainly important topics. I think a lot of people were already playing around with the idea of online campuses and oh yeah. And they were they were streaming their services but seeing it more as a um as a way for people to find their church but not as a way uh yeah. for them to attend long term. And then we had the pandemic. Everybody saw it as, well, it's necessary now because we can't meet in person. Uh, so even at my church, we had online service for several weeks uh, while we were in lockdown. Um, but the whole time I said, uh, and every online service, I said, this is a uh, necessary but temporary measure until yes. we can come back together. Uh, but then you saw uh, a lot of other churches where that was not the same attitude where instead the pandemic slowly it wound down or, you know, a couple of years in now, it seems as though we're coming to the end. And, uh, but those measures weren't temporary. Instead, they were just embraced as this can be a part of the new normal. Well, this has been going on for a long time. I did an interview. Oh, I don't know. 12, 15 years ago it was actually on the BBC with a guy who had a church called St. Pixels. Do you remember that? That was one of the early online churches, St. Pixels. Uh, I haven't heard of that, no. Yeah, it might still be out there. This is pre-metaverse. And the fellow that was the uh, pastor, I don't like to use air quotes because I find that obnoxious, but quote-unquote pastor, said, you know, people are very authentic in St. Pixels. I said, how the heck do you know that? <laughs> <laughs> They're using an avatar. They're using a representation. In a sense, they're using a mask. Now, maybe they are, but you can't really tell. So here we are 15 years later, and the trend continues, or it's developed from just a few episodes, a few hiccups here and there, maybe into a trend. Now, what I like to say about that kind of thing, and I know I don't want to go on forever about philosophy of technology, but you don't want to make the second best into the best. 
you don't want to get habituated to a emergency measure and then make it into the standard that you always employ. So in a lockdown, Kathleen and I went online for our church, Trinity Anglican Church, felt kind of strange. Um, we're a liturgical church, part of the uh, Anglican revival, renewal in the United States. And so we consecrate the elements. We consecrate the bread and the wine. So you can't just say as an Anglican, we'll go to the refrigerator and take out a piece of bread and, and get a, a little taste of wine or grape juice because it needs to be consecrated by the priest. So uh, one of our churches actually did that. You could go somewhere and get the elements and then take the elements. Of course, that's second best too. Yeah. Yeah. And I just see in all of it, especially in the metaverse, but then especially if Christian churches start, start to embrace the metaverse, this uh, almost neo-paganism happening where we are believing that we can disembody our, ourselves and have authentic, to go back to the, the pastor of St. Pixels, authentic community and expressions of ourselves that don't include embodied interactions. Right. What you're assuming, if you say that that is an authentic expression of oneself and community, is that one can be authentically themselves removed from their bodies. Exactly. And, and that's so, kind of a high yeah, tech. I'm not, yeah. Yeah. You, you're the expert. So maybe you could give a better label well, I, to it. But I agree. Yeah. It sounds it's like right. a type of techno paganism. Yeah, it is. And I, I saw that temptation even back in 1990, I guess 97 is when my book came out a long time ago. I think I called it uh, digital Gnosticism, something like that, mm. because yeah. the Gnostics said the body is not important. Actually, the body is expendable. We need to get rid of it and ascend to a higher level of pure spirit without body. And Christianity says in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. All things were made through him. That's the physical and spiritual universe. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. So we worship the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Son is called Emmanuel, God with us. And if you look at the end, don't read over it too quickly. The end of 2nd and 3rd John, the writer says, I would write more to you, but I long to be with you so that our joy might be complete. So he's writing Holy Scripture as an apostle. But he says, I would rather be with you. So the Apostle Paul in Romans 1 says, I long to be with you that I might impart to you a spiritual gift. How do you lay on hands digitally? How do you take communion digitally? How do you have a baptism digitally? I go to an Anglican church. How do you pass the peace after we confess our sins and are assured we're forgiven from Scripture? Then we pass the peace, meaning the peace of the Lord be with you. Now, even you know when COVID was still pretty... Uh, hot and everyone's worried about it and people were wearing masks you still could at least wave to people or maybe you know do an elbow or something mm -hmm. but we don't want to cut back the personal presence for the sake of digital interaction now if nobody if somebody's out there who has no access to the church let's say in a closed country where they persecute christians they make the church illegal well then thank god if someone can sneak online and hear a sermon or give a prayer request. Terrific. That's been done with radio in closed countries for years. 
I mean, to shift the emphasis a little bit, the United States had something called, uh, was it Radio Free America or Radio Free Europe, where they would get the message of America and freedom into the communist countries because we couldn't come in and set up teaching institutions there, but we could go over the top and bring in the radio. We can do the same thing, but it's second best. And it's because we live in a fallen and corrupt world. But I mean, take it back to apologetics. I think the best way to do apologetics is by uh, bringing it into the pulpit where people are there giving lectures on university and college campuses, small groups where unbelievers are welcome to ask any question they want, one-on-one interactions that are planned or which just happen on the fly. And some of those that happen on the fly can be really interesting. If I can, we just have time. Can I tell a short story? We're at an hour. Yeah, please do. This might encourage people. I went to an event Oh, I think about 1995, it was about near-death experiences, and it was sponsored by the local Baha'i group. And the man started talking about near-death experiences, which was all the rage about 25 years ago. It goes in cycles of about 20 years. And he held up my book, Deceived by the Light, and he said, here's a book written on near-death experiences. And I waved my hand and I said, I wrote that book. And the man said, well, would you like to come up and finish the lecture for me? I said, sure. (laughs) (laughs) So I went up there and lectured for about half an hour and took questions for a long time and then witnessed to people afterwards. Wow. So one thing I hope people will get out of this, you know, this, this tome, this brick, this doorstop, is that this is a challenging and interesting way to live having a reason for the hope that is within you. Of course, everybody's not going to be a professor of philosophy, write a big book, uh, be a pastor, but get your chops down, you know, know why you believe and how to defend it. Know what you believe, why you believe, and ask the Holy Spirit to give you opportunities to testify, to explain the gospel, to defend the gospel, and if you're in a setting where you don't know how to answer, a coworker, a family member, then get busy. You know, they say in jazz, go in the woodshed, develop your chops. So if you don't know how to defend the basic reliability of the New Testament, then learn. If you don't even know one argument for the existence of God from natural theology, then learn. If you have no idea how to deal with the problem of evil and you just say, well, I take it on faith, well, that might help you, but it's not going to help the unbeliever who has a very uh, sharp objection to what you believe. Yeah, that's great. And I think that that's exactly kind of where I wanted to end was just to, for you to give your, your final encouragement or what you wanted to leave the listeners with. And so I think that's great. Uh, well, we had a lot more we could have gone into and uh, talked more about the metaverse, but that's why we can just do this another time. Right. I uh, appreciate your time so much, Doug, and having you back on here for uh, not just your time on the podcast, but for all the work you do in your books and writing and teaching. Uh, thank you so much. And thanks for coming on the show again. Okay. Well, you're welcome. Godspeed. Thanks for listening. 
hope this episode provided you with biblical clarity to live with confidence in our confusing world. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch up the latest from me, you can go to my website, AaronChamp.com. While you're there, subscribe to my newsletter so that you can be updated anytime I share new content. You can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Aaron M. Champ. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. Until then, hold fast to the end.